church. Speaking of too much freedom and too much this and too much that, you guys know that for the past few weeks we've been trying to figure out if you can ever have too much of a good thing. The Bible is full of examples of good things in our spiritual life, and I've kind of just been saying, well, is, there, is it possible? Is it, is it even on, on the table to ask the question, is there too much of, of some of these good things? And I hope you've picked up on the fact that I'm really just trying to have fun by addressing it in this way. Of course, of course, of course, of course, I'm not suggesting that we need to all stop being humble or we need to all stop being joyful or we need to all stop working. That's not what I say. I hope that you've appreciated the fact that these messages that I've shared have just really been meant to be kind of a tongue in cheek way of identifying that there are ways in which our spiritual well-being, well-being can get out of balance sometimes. And we need to be aware of that. We need to know what's going on. I hope that you have picked up that my intent has been for these messages to just kind of be in fun. Because if you haven't picked up on that fact, then today I'm really, really going to offend you. Right? It was one thing when I was up there saying, you know, perhaps there's too much comfort or perhaps there's too much humility or perhaps there's too much work. Today, I want to ask the question, is there such a thing as too much prayer? And the church family is like, all right, Pastor Dan, you've taken it too far. You have crossed the line. Absolutely. The line is nothing to you. It was silly. It was fun. It was lighthearted. It was good nature. But now you've crossed the line, you say to your pastor, because of course, of course, there's no such thing as praying too much. Of course, there's no such thing as too much prayer. And already, many of you are ready to tell me exactly why the Bible says there's no such thing as too much prayer. Already, you're thinking of verses like these. You're thinking of Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, that says, Do not be anxious about anything. But in how many situations? Most situations? Some situations? No, 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 Pastor Dan. It says in every situation by prayer. By prayer. That means we're supposed to be praying in every circumstance. So obviously you can't pray too much because we're supposed to pray in every situation by prayer. Present your request to God. Some of you are thinking of James chapter 5, verse 16. You're saying, Pastor Dan, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. So don't tell me I can have too much of that because it's powerful and effective. Some of you are thinking of Colossians chapter four, verse two, which tells us devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. You can't devote yourself to something without going all the way. That's not what devotion looks like. Devotion means all, fully, totally, all the way. There's no such thing as too much. If you're going to devote yourself to prayer, you're going all the way in your prayer life. And some of you are like, no, 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 no. We don't even need those verses because we're just going right to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 17. We're going to say the only two words in the entire verse. We're going to say, pray continually. And we're going to drop the microphone and walk off the stage. You can't have too much prayer. It says pray continually. It doesn't say pray and then at some point take a break because you probably prayed enough. Uh-uh, uh-uh, Pastor Dan. It says pray continually, mic drop, game over, everybody go home, right? That's what you're going to say. Of course there's no such thing as praying too much. 
No pastor in his right mind would ever suggest that the key to spiritual breakthrough in your life is to stop praying so much. But then there's me. (laughs) Then there's me. And you guys know that I really, really enjoy helping you to think critically about the things that you just kind of always assumed were always true. I really enjoy that. And some of you are praying for me right now. That's what we're going to do today, and we're going to do it this way. I'm going to tell you a Bible story. Actually, it's a Bible story that I would imagine most of you know in this world that we describe so often as post-Christian, meaning the tenets of the Christian faith and the stories of the Christian faith and the principles of the Christian faith that used to be in our culture the kind of thing that everybody knew, even if not everybody believed them, at least everybody knew what Christians believe, is no longer true. In this day and age, we preachers can't assume that the people we meet in the streets and even in our churches have read the Bible and know the stories and know the characters. We can't make that assumption anymore. But I would submit to you that the Bible story I want to reference today is one of the very few Bible stories that has kind of survived that transition to the post-Christian world. This is one of the few remaining stories that I would guess most everybody has encountered at some level, in some way, at some time, and they have a basic idea of how it goes. I'm gonna tell you today uh, the story of Moses leading the Israelites across the Red Sea. We know this story because It's been told at every vacation Bible school pretty much since Jesus was a little boy, right? It's been in every picture Bible. Children learn it. It's always part of the study. We've done Bible studies on it. There are books written about it. There are stories told about it. And there are classic Hollywood films that depict it. Films made for children and films made for adults. So I think most of us have a general idea of the story of the crossing of the Red Sea. If you know the story, and as I said, I imagine that you do, you'll remember that the Israelites were enslaved by the Egyptians, and Moses was called at the burning bush to go back into Egypt and approach Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh, God says, let my people go. And Pharaoh said, yeah, that's going to happen. And Moses went back and there was the back and forth between he and Pharaoh. And eventually there were a bunch of plagues. And eventually things got so bad for Pharaoh that he said, Moses, you and the Israelites get out of here. Just good riddance. We're done with you. And you'll remember that when that happened, the Israelites skipped out of town and they headed straight for the Red Sea. And as they got to the Red Sea, they realized that the Egyptians had changed their minds and were chasing them in the chariots and they were stuck and they didn't know what to do. And then there was a great miracle and God parted the waters and Moses and the Israelites walked through and the Egyptians gave chase and then the waters closed in and the Egyptian army was destroyed and Moses and the Israelites were saved. Did I do an okay job? Is that basically the story there? Okay. Well, the thing is, like most Bible stories, if it's been a while since we've actually read the story from the text, chances are we've missed a few of the details. And that's all I'm gonna do today. I'm actually only gonna read two verses of the entire story to you because there's a little detail that tends to get glossed over or skipped or misunderstood. All of the above in all of the books in all the stories, in all the movies, and in all of the cartoons. There's this little detail that I want to point out today. 
And the setup for this detail is the fact that when Moses and the Israelites left Egypt, in most of the movies I've seen, it makes it look like they left Egypt about dinner time, right? They had the Passover and then just after dinner, they loaded up the the carts and, and they left. And then it almost seems like, and then later that night, they realized the Egyptians were chasing them and and the Red Sea needed to be parted. The Bible says that's not how that went at all. They left Egypt, they left Egypt, and they actually wandered for a while. They didn't make it out of what we would say modern day Egypt was. They just left the region that was inhabited by the empire. And instead of going the way that Pharaoh and everybody else would have expected them to go, God led them on this circuitous wandering kind of route, like a, like a resident of Chicago looking for a parking space. They just kept on turning around and looking and looking and not finding anywhere to go. And Pharaoh was aware of that. And that's one of the reasons that Pharaoh said, these guys don't know what's going on. I think we could catch them. And so he raises a battalion of chariots and and sends them off after them. And in the meantime, the Bible says that God told Moses, set up camp here at this particular spot along the seashore. And strategically, it's like the worst spot to set up camp if somebody's chasing you. He basically told Moses, go into that place right there where you will be cornered. Do the worst thing you could possibly do. And see, Pharaoh knew this. And so Pharaoh's like, we got him. And he goes after them thinking, this is going to be easy. We're just going to get him back. We can go back to building and doing all the things we were doing. Let me read to you the verse I want to read. This is from Exodus chapter 14, verse 10. It says, as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up. Now, remember, they're cornered here. They're pinned in against the, the sea. They looked up and there were the Egyptians marching after them. And it says they were terrified and they cried out to the Lord. Leave it right there. They cried out to the Lord. That's just a fancy way of saying they prayed. How many of us have ever prayed that prayer before? Right? They cried out to the Lord. They were stuck and they were afraid and they were pretty sure this was the end. And so they cried out to the Lord. And over the course of the next four verses, The narrator goes on to tell us they didn't just cry out to the Lord. They started complaining to Moses. We know that they like to do that a lot. They told Moses, this is ridiculous. Why have you done this to us? We should have just died in Egypt. Not only are they complaining to Moses, they're going on and on about how terrible this situation is. Moses is trying to to settle them down because he realizes I'm in charge of this mess. And so he's saying to them, God's got a plan. We just, need to, we just need to let God move. But you can almost, if you read between the lines, you can hear it in Moses' voice. He's pretty scared of himself. He's, he's not exactly sure how they got themselves into this fine mess, right? So the Israelites are crying out to the Lord. They're also complaining to Moses. Moses is trying to reassure them, but he seems to be pretty stuck as well. And we have this impasse here. And it's not until verse 15, just a few verses later, that God finally speaks to the situation. He responds. And before we look at it, if you were writing the Bible, what do you imagine God should say at this moment? If I were writing the Bible, I would have God and the Lord said unto them, Thank you for bringing your concerns to me. You are good children and I am a great God. You have handled this appropriately. Thank you for praying. 
Now, here's what we're going to do. If I were writing the Bible and I had to write this next verse, I would say, God would say, you are good children for crying out to me and to pray. Now, listen to my commands and I will tell you the way forward. If I were scoring this for a movie, I would say at this moment is when we hear the theme song to Mighty Mouse. And we hear God say, here I come to save the day. <laughs> this is that moment, right? Any Andy Kaufman fans in the room? Yeah, okay, thank you. <laughs> the 70s called. Um, <laughs> none of those things happened. Now I'm going to read to you verse 15. What does God actually say? Exodus chapter 14, verse 15. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Are you kidding me? That's what God had to say to his people in that moment. Maybe not with the snort and quite the attitude that I just gave it, but do you see the words? Why are you crying out to me? God seems a little dismayed and confused as to why they're praying. Why are you crying out to me? He says to Moses, tell the Israelites to move on. In other words, why are you guys still praying here? It's time to move. I believe there are times in our lives when the decision to call a time out and pray some more can actually make it more difficult for us to obey God, not less. And I'm going to show you a few examples of what I have in mind. The first actually is exactly what we see right here in this story. And I want to put it this way. We can stop praying. Okay, we can stop praying when God says go. We can stop praying when God says go. God had already told the Israelites that they were going to go. They were going to go to Canaan. But a funny thing happened on the way to the promised land. Things got unexpectedly difficult and the Israelites' reaction was to double back. Maybe we better double check about this. <laughs> Maybe we better see if God really meant what he said. Maybe we better pray a little bit more about this. And so God responds the way he responds, saying, why, 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 why are you crying out to me? I think the essence of what God is saying isn't necessarily it's bad when you pray. Of course, that's not what God is saying. But I think God is telling Moses, hey, I told you to go. So now is not the time to pray about going. Now is the time to go. Now is the time to go. Folks, I believe that sometimes we can be tempted to use prayer as procrastination. We think we're being spiritual, but what we're really doing is just putting off doing the hard things that God has already told us to do. So I think it's safe to say that we can stop praying once God says go. Once he says go, it's time to go. We told you um, a couple of years ago, a group of the seniors from HRCC went down to, to senior retreat in lovely Carlinville, Illinois. How many of you were on that trip? What a hoot. Hey, good news for y'all. The retreat's back on this year. We'll have dates for you late, later this fall, okay? Two years ago, we went to the seniors retreat. We came back and we told you, you saw the people that just raised their hands. They were crazy, okay? They were, bad things happened at seniors retreat. And the worst of them was some of these folks climbed up to the top of a multi-story barn and strapped into a zip line and zipped across like a football field full of farmland. It was absolutely ridiculous and I bear no responsibility whatsoever. It was terrible. 
They did a zip line. The next summer, my family and I were in Carlinville taking a few days of, of, of R&R right at that campground. I don't go on zip lines. I didn't do that zip line. I'm not that foolish. But we were swimming in the summer down at the lakefront. Sue, the kids, and I we were down, you know, central Illinois lake swimming. You know how it is, right? And in the lake at Camp Carlinville, there's a tower in the lake that's maybe 10 feet up. And wouldn't you know it, at the top of the tower is a zip line. You can grab hold and zip down like you're in a Mountain Dew commercial and then splash down into the lake. And Jessica says to me, Dad, let's do the zip line. And I said, sure. It's like a little kitty zip line. Let's go do that. And so we get up. There. And as I recall, Jessica got up there and zip and drop, dropped into the lake. I climbed up to the top of this little tower where there was a teenage girl lifeguard sitting there waiting, giving instructions on the zip line. I get up there. I've told you this before. I'm afraid of heights. I get up, oh my goodness, it was like eight times as high as I thought it was, once you're up there. And as I get there, this girl says to me, she goes, okay, you're going to do the zip line and splash in the lake? I said, mm -hmm. and, and she says, okay, just do this. Make sure you go at least 10 or 12 feet out. Because right under the tower, the water's a little bit more shallow. You don't want to splash down here. So just make sure you hold on a good 10 or 12. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. You've got to be kidding me. I, I don't zip line in my everyday life. There's no harness. So it's just grab this handle and jump off and hope you splash off where you're not going to kill yourself. I'm like, okay, okay. So now I'm standing there thinking this was the worst idea I've had all day. It was early. Um, <laughs> but I'm starting to worry, can I hold on to this thing for 10 or 12 feet? I mean, it's like, I'm gonna jump on it and it's gonna go down and it's gonna jerk and my hands are wet because I've been swimming. I don't know if I've got a good enough grip. I'm picturing myself jumping off this platform and just plummeting to the bottom of Lake Carlinville, breaking both my legs and, you know, like still being there as an artifact today that divers can explore. <laughs> This is what I'm picturing on top of this tower. And so I did what men do who don't want to admit that they're scared. I started talking. And I'm like, so how long have you been a lifeguard? <laughs> well, how's, yeah, oh wow, that's, you know, I'm a pastor. You know, I'm one of the ministers that, uh, yeah, this is our campgrounds. Oh, that's fascinating, yeah. Well, you think, how warm do you think it's gonna to get today? And, and so 10 feet you say, oh, has anybody ever not made it? And yeah, no, 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 that's good. Oh, my family, we're from Downers Grove. You ever hear about that? I'm going on and on and on and on. Just anything to avoid actually jumping off this platform to my death. And, and finally this 18 year old girl looks at me and she's like, are you gonna go or not? <laughs> And so with an abundance of shame in my heart, I ziplined and I made it the 10 or 15 feet or however far it was. And obviously I survived Amen. to tell the story. Praise the Lord. <laughs> Let's pray and go home. That's all I have. <laughs> I tell you that story to say this. Sometimes I think we try to use conversation as a way of delaying doing what we don't want to do. I've always been amazed by this other Bible story, the story of Abraham and Isaac. You know the one where Abraham is told by God that he's going to have to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice. Again, it's, it's a real short story. We, we think of it as this great big epic. It's a very short story. I'm going to read the two verses to you from Genesis chapter 2, verse 2. They're on the screen. It says, Then God said to Abraham, Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Let me pause. 
Because you would think that this would be the moment when Abraham should stop and pray, right? Like this would be, if ever there was a time to call a prayer meeting to kind of take five and let's process this together, Lord. I mean, this is the moment when I'm calling a 40 day fast to really seek the Lord's face and all of that. But look at what the very next verse says. Early the next morning, not even mid-morning. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and he obeyed. Now, Abraham's story clearly is extreme. And I don't mean to make light of it. It needs to be said. If you believe God is telling you to hurt someone, you do need to stop. You do need to speak to somebody before you just go out and do that. But could, could we apply the principle here? Could we recognize that once God has said go, our job is to go, not to talk about going, not to engage in a conversation, not to procrastinate. Once God has said go, our job is to go. Here's another example. Another circumstance that I think is going to help us find the sweet spot in our prayers. And it's this. We can stop praying once God says, bro. Okay, you know the sermon is anointed when, when the points rhyme. Okay? The two most anointed sermons are when all the points rhyme or when the first letters spell out a word like worship or something like that. Those are the two most anointed sermons. This is pretty, this is pretty anointed here. Once God has said, go, and once he said, bro, okay? Here's what I mean by that. Bro, as in your brother, as in your sister. Few things are as important to God as our relationships with one another. And in multiple places throughout the Bible, we are reminded that our unwillingness to work on healthy relationships with each other can be a detriment to our prayers. That's essentially the message that the Old Testament prophets would say again and again to the people of Israel and Judah. They would say, you know what? God has stopped listening to you. And he has stopped listening to you because you have refused to take care of each other well. And so now is not the time to cry out to God, Lord God, help me, save me. You need to be working on your relationships with each other first. That was the message that the Old Testament prophets would say again and again. I'm going to show you one of these verses that sometimes is a little awkward for us to talk about in modern society. The Apostle Peter in his first epistle, it's way at the end of the New Testament. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, Peter writes, Husbands, be considerate with your wives. And he says, as the weaker partner. Now, this is the verse that has given us that term, the weaker sex, the, the fairer sex. And it's been misapplied and misunderstood to support different kinds of misogyny throughout history. Can I tell you what Peter is actually writing? Can I tell you what these words mean? First of all, though most of our modern translations say husbands be, I want to read this right, be considerate with your wives. He doesn't use the Greek word for wife there. He says, be considerate with the women of your house. Be considerate. Husbands, men of the household, be considerate with the women in your house. And in Peter's context, that would have meant wives. It would have meant daughters. It would have meant mothers. It would have meant mothers-in-law. It would have meant sisters-in-law. It would have meant the female servants that work in your household. It would have meant the, the, the women who are part of the land working where you work. It would have meant a whole host of people. He says, men of the household, be considerate with the ladies in your life. You may think that they are the weaker sex. 
But you better respect them, and you better understand that they are equal heirs with you in the gift of life that God has given. Do we hear what Peter is saying? Do we hear what he's saying? You may think they are weaker, but you better recognize that the Spirit of God has called them equal to you before God. Now, why does he say that? Why does he say you better pay attention to that? Well, it's the second half of the verse. So that nothing will hinder your prayers. You better wake up to that reality. You better realize what's going on here in your relationships, not with your brothers in this case, in this case with your sisters. You better realize what's going on in those relationships because if you don't, you're going to find that your prayer life has been hindered. I believe it shows us that failure to honor God in our relationships, and that includes not just specific relationships, but that includes, as we see here, prejudices that we have. It includes chauvinism that we have. It includes any kind of othering that we do. Failure to deal with our relationships appropriately can be a hindrance to our prayers. But let me just give you these words from Jesus, and they're the ones that I cite on your outline. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 23, Jesus says, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, in other words, if you're going to worship, if you're going to prayer, and there you remember that your brother, your bro, or your sister has something against you, what are we supposed to do? Leave your gift at the altar first, Go and be reconciled to them. Then come back and offer your gift. Your prayer, God is saying, your worship is not as important in this moment as is your relationship with your brother or sister. Take care of that first, and then we'll talk. You can stop praying when God says, bro, look at your brother, look at your sister. Part of the the legend of the Martinson family is that when I was uh, preschool-aged, I was still an only child at the time, I have a cousin who's just a couple of months younger than me, daughter of my Aunt Joanne and Uncle Dane. Uh, Julie and I grew up essentially as brother and sister, and when we were preschool-aged, our moms used to take us to the Mommy and Me swim lesson at the Y. And Aunt Joanne would drive the car and she would pick up mom who would sit in the front seat, and Julie and I, as preschoolers, would sit in the back seat and go to swimming lessons. And the story is told about how one day on our way to swimming lessons, uh, the drive was interrupted with what I can only imagine was the sound of deep wailing and gnashing of teeth coming from the back seat. I was crying. I was crying. And so the moms asked me, Danny, why are you crying? And I said, because Julie called me a P.U. duck. My cousin Julie called me a P.U. duck. I'm sure you're wondering, as they wondered that day, what a P.U. duck is. Apparently, Julie and I were well-versed in the, the, the world of P.U. ducks. P.U. ducks are those black cat-looking things that have a white stripe down them and smell real bad. And Julie, I mean, she's not here, so let me just say this. Can you believe the nerve of that girl? She called me a P.U. duck and then expected to swim with me and have a good time. (laughs) Parents, every parent in the room is gonna identify with God's reluctance to respond well to his children when his children are not responding well to each other. 
How many parents of multiples in the room have said, if you kids don't stop killing each other, I'm going to kill both of you? <laughs> if we as broken people respond that way when our children are not in right relationship with each other, how much more a perfect God desires his children to be in right relationship with each other? When we have not handled our relationships well, it's not time to pray about something else. It's time to fix the relationships. The problem is, and I just want to identify this really quickly, Here's the heart of the problem as I see it. I think it's just more comfortable for us to think of ourselves as being alone in our relationship with God. How does the old hymn go? I come to the garden alone, right? And it goes on, and he walks with me and he talks with me. Beautiful song. But you know what? I don't think it's helpful for us to think of ourselves as coming to the garden alone. That's not what the Bible says. We don't come into God's presence alone. We are members of a tremendous multitude. The Bible says you are part of a holy nation. It doesn't say you are a holy person. It says you are a holy nation. It doesn't say you're a royal priest. It says you are part of a royal priesthood of believers. It doesn't say you are a peculiar person, though that might be true. It says you are a peculiar people who have been called unto the Lord, who have been called. We are part of the family of the redeemed, and God does not want us to use our personal prayer life as an excuse to isolate from our brothers and from our sisters. I have one last issue that I want to reference, and I think perhaps it's the most difficult of all of these. I put it this way, we can stop praying once God says no. Once he says go, once he says bro, and once he says no. Once God says no. I believe that there are instances in life when when my desire to just pray a little while longer, to ask again, to keep trying to we even spiritualize it, don't we? To persevere in prayer, glory, hallelujah. That may just be a thinly veiled impulse toward disobedience. Uh, when I was a, a teenager, apparently I used the pulpit for just working out the issues that you know, would cost me money in therapy. Um, so I'm going to do that one more time. Thanks, you can bill me later. When I was a teenager, one of the standing rules in my household was I was not allowed to be at friends' houses, especially if there was a group getting together, unless there was a parent home or some supervisor present. That was a standing rule. I knew the rule well. It was, it was just the way things were in the Martinson household. And with very few exceptions, maybe families that my folks knew very well, uh, with very few exceptions, there was just no budging on, on this rule. And so, you know, as I got to be 15 or 16, even 17 years old, I'd say to my folks sometimes, hey, uh, a bunch of us are going to go, go, go meet at John's house uh, after school today. And, and the response was always the same. Is there going to be a parent home? <sighs> Mom, yeah, right? This was just the struggle between me and my folks in this rule. But I was a smart kid, or so I thought. And so I learned creative ways of trying to get around that question, right? So I'd be like, yeah, yeah, after school, you know, we got this rehearsal and, and we're doing this because of, you know, the music thing, right, right? And we might stop by Bill's place afterwards to pick up some stuff, you know, kind of downplay that part of the story. Bill's parents be home? Oh, you gotta be kidding me. 
So I try and couch it, make it sound like a good thing. Hey, there's a study group before finals this week, and and so and so has said we could use their living room to to study because we all got you know our final in chemistry this week, right? So I'm going to stop by there because you know, man, my my chemistry grade's been rough. I really need this study group. So I'll just you know I'll call you when we're done. Their parents going to be home? Oh, you got to be kidding me! You know. Band director says we need more work on this tune. We got to schedule some private rehearsal time. So we're, I would couch it all these different ways. What if I ask this way? What if I say this? What if I do that? What if I make it sound like a good thing? But my parents would just always, cool. Parents going to be home? <laughs> it was so frustrating. I'm good now, though, Mom. <laughs> I wonder if we sometimes have the tendency to do that in our prayer lives. To ask God for permission to do something that he's already told us we're not allowed to do. And so we just reframe the request. We try to make it sound like a healthy thing. We try and emphasize the way that it's spiritual and it's good. We try to slip it through. And then we read what the psalmist says prophetically in Psalm 89, verse 34. Speaking on God's behalf, the psalmist says, I will not violate my covenant or alter what my lips have uttered. I ain't going to change my mind, is what the Lord says. And that I think brings up two challenges for us. The first is this. How well do we know God's word? If God's saying, I'm not going to change my mind on what I have already said, then it kind of behooves us to say, well, we need to have a decent idea of what you've already said. Do we know what God has already said no to? Uh, We're having uh, some roofing work done on the church. Actually, I I know I said this before, but I'm hoping that next Sunday when when we worship together, there will be a new roof over our heads and there will be no more involuntary baptisms in the back of the church, right? (laughs) I was going through the contract and, you know, they had sent me a contract and an estimate and all the numbers. I was going through it last week and, and there was something related to one of the vents that I had specifically asked the contractor to include, and, and I get this contract, and I look, and it's, it's not in there. And I'm like, I wasn't mad, but I was frustrated. Holy indignation, I think, is the appropriate term to describe how I was feeling. And so I fired off an email back to the contractor's office saying, hey, thanks for the, for the, for the contract, for the estimate here, but I can't sign this because it is incomplete, and I specifically asked for this information, and you did not include it. And I got an email back later that afternoon, a very polite, passive-aggressive email from the office saying, try to read line C. And I go back, oh yeah, it is in there. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Right? And it's like that. We, We ask questions when we haven't read the manual yet. Have you ever called tech support? And they're like, did you read the manual? I don't think they even ask that anymore because they know we didn't read the manual. But some of us in prayer are calling tech support and the Lord's like, yeah, did you read the manual? Right? How well do we actually know what he has already said no to? That's the first problem. The second problem is this. How willing are we to acknowledge that his no even applies to my unique situation? It even applies to my unique situation. Do you remember a couple weeks ago when I told you the story of the bunnies in our backyard? I told you how baby Mo and Mama Bunny had had that conversation after the lawn mowing incident, right? And she had scolded him. She had said, baby Mo, I told you never to leave the burrow. 
And he said, yes, I know you did, but you didn't understand that the lawnmower was going to come and then it was going to come straight for us and then it was going to be big and it was going to be loud and it was going to be scary. You didn't know that specific situation and so I had to do the only thing I could do. I had to run out of that burrow. Do you remember what I told you, baby? Uh, Mama Bunny said to Baby Mo? She said, little baby, I didn't tell you because I didn't know about your unique situation. I told you no because I did know about your unique situation. And I think we have a way of reframing what feels like our unique situation to us. We have a way of reframing it to God and saying, I know that your word says thou shalt not, but certainly you didn't understand that in this circumstance I'm in, such and such would be the case. Certainly you didn't understand that I'm in love, and so it makes sense to pursue this direction. Certainly you didn't understand that I'm in debt, so it makes sense for me to handle my finances accordingly. Certainly you didn't understand that I have responsibilities to other people, so it makes sense that I would bend the rules in this way, in this unique situation. Certainly you didn't understand the uniqueness of my specific situation. I mean, folks, we need to be honest. Every one of us has prayed that prayer. And God said, no, I I, I did understand. And that's why I said no. Do we understand that his no applies even to my unique situation? Church, God knows every detail and every nuance of your circumstance. He understands your life perfectly. And I think we need to come to this place where we're ready to say, I am not the exception to the rule. I am not the exception to the rule. And more prayer isn't going to change that. Once he has said no, it's time to stop asking. So I I just want to remind you as I move to close today, tongue in cheek, right? We've just been looking at how things sometimes get out of balance with our spiritual lives. So of course, hearkening back to previous messages I've preached in the last couple of weeks. Of course, there's nothing wrong with joy. I just think it's important that we also learn how to grieve. And of course, there's nothing wrong with work. I just think that it's important that we also learn how to rest. And there's nothing wrong with humility. I just think it's important that we also learn how to be bold when the time calls for it. And today, can I just acknowledge, before you all run me out of town, there's nothing wrong with prayer. Pray more, pray more, pray more, pray continually. Is that the verse you gave me at the beginning of the sermon today, right? Absolutely. Let's do, there's nothing wrong with prayer. It's just that I think we also need to learn obedience. I think that we also need to learn obedience. And too many times in the course of my life, I've recognized in myself, and I've heard as other people have come to their pastor, examples in which I I, I just feel like sometimes our desire to go back to prayer is actually an impulse to try and find a loophole in what God has said. Maybe he said go and we don't wanna go. Maybe he said bro and we don't wanna pay attention to our brother. Maybe he said no, and we're just looking for a way that he will say yes. I think I've told you this before. There have been a handful of very few 
times in my ministry where someone has come to me and said, Pastor, will you pray with me about such and such? And I've had enough relational equity with that person that I felt that I could take this bold step and I've told them, no, I will not pray with you about that. Because what, are you, what you are asking me to pray for is an issue that God has already resolved. And I think we would do well to learn the difference. Go, bro, no. Timely obedience in these circumstances is so essential to our well-being. And so it's appropriate, I think, that this day on this service, we conclude by turning our attention to the Lord's table. You have your communion emblems on on the seat where you came and you sat down. And it occurs to me, I'm I'm going to grab one of the emblems right here. It occurs to me that the memorial we know that we call communion or the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, the Lord's table. One of the things that this practice does is it takes us kind of in reverse through the words that I've spoken today. Let me tell you what I mean. When we come to the Lord's table, the first thing we need to do is to recognize that God is empowering us to say no, to say no to our old way of life. Then as we sit down at the table, we hear God calling us to gather with brothers, with sisters. We hear God say, bro. And finally, As we finish the meal together, we then hear his commission to go into the world with the message of reconciliation that he has given to us. And so this really, at least for today, the hallmark, the memory point, the sticking point that we will have as we share this meal together is that we will hear God say no, we will hear God say bro, and then we'll hear God say go. And so will you just open up this top portion that has the bread in it? And will you quiet your heart for just a moment and recognize that in this moment, if you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have declared him to be Lord over your life, if you have bowed your knee before King Jesus, renouncing all others, then the Holy Spirit of God is upon you and in you and through you and for you. And he is empowering you to respond with faith to the holy, divine no that God gives to his children. And if it helps you in this moment to picture Mama Bunny cuddling baby Mo and saying, my child, it's because I understand that I've told you what what I've told you. It's because I knew that you would be here. It's because I know what that's like, that you have received my holy no. As you hear his voice say that to you today, would you receive the bread? You can flip your cup over and prepare the juice. I'd ask you to acknowledge that round the table you find brothers and sisters who have likewise with you followed Jesus throughout time and space, throughout eternity, 
and irrespective of location, we gather today as a holy nation. A holy nation. I'd ask you to, in your mind's eye, look around the table and recognize, as the disciples recognized, that there were people sitting around that table that they didn't particularly like. Matthew the tax collector, Simon the Zealot, ooh, they did not like each other. James and John, sons of thunder, and pretty much everybody else at the table, ooh, they did not like each other. They just didn't all get along. But part of the calling was that they heard God point out to the others in the room and say, that's your brother. That's your brother. As you hear the Spirit today affirm in your heart the brotherhood, the sisterhood of believers, would you receive the emblem? And now, it's the go. Now it's the go, is it not? Now is the moment when we hear the Spirit of God say, all right, my children, now I've given you marching orders. Now I've told you to go ahead with the boldness and the the fullness of the life that I have given you. Now I have given you my Spirit so that you might be empowered to do what? To stay? No. To go. To go. And so just because I'm feeling like that kind of a guy today, I'm going to needle you one more time. We are, for the first time that I can remember, I'm not going to conclude the service with a word of prayer. Is that okay? If you have any complaints this week, feel free to call the office. I will not be there. (laughs) My family and I are getting away for a few days. And so, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose blood we are washed, and by whose strength we live, I just give you this bidding. Go.